This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. First of all, a massive thank you to everyone who listened to last week's special episode with Anna Subri. It quickly became the most listened to episode we've ever had and put us in the top ten of all podcasts on iTunes. So thank you for that. Well, in the interest of balance, having had a long chat during a sunny walk around London with an outgoing Conservative MP quitting their party, I thought we should do the same with a Labour MP. So in this episode, I'm going to go for a walk with Ian Austin, former Labour MP for Dudley, who quit the party last week. So let's see if we can find him. Should we go out that way? Should we go out by yeah, the red yeah, line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, might, I might buy an ice cream. So Ian, we're outside yeah. uh, the red line. Yeah. We yeah. had many, many happy evenings in there. <laughs> One or two. <laughs> now, when you, because we'll talk about what's happened over the you know, past few days. Yeah. But um, I mean, obviously, I tell my constituents I'm far too busy working while I'm in London to ever have a drink. No, of course. So, but I think I've told, told me there's, that there are. The, I've there told, I, th- pub there. I think I tell the news desk the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is a slightly weird thing where this is happening every day. The taxis come in block at Parliament Square, which means it's all slightly eerie silence in Whitehall. I once really stupidly put on Twitter, I'd driven from Dudley, I got stuck in Victoria because of one of these taxi protests, and I stupidly put on Twitter something about Uber. Yeah. And the... I bet they didn't the, like that. <laughs> this is years and years ago, and I was still getting tweets about it last week. <laughs> well, that's the power of social media here. So, um, let's, let's talk then about what happened last week. On yeah. Friday, you became the ninth Labour MP to yeah. uh, quit the party. Yeah. Um, just, if people haven't sort of kept on talking, just explain why it was that you, you took that decision. Well, because in the end, I've become ashamed of the position the Labour Party's got itself into under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And this is specifically about anti-Semitism? Well, it's about, yeah, I mean, I think anti-Semitism is the, the clearest example, but it's, I, I think, a culture of extremism and intolerance. And I think that, I think, look, I think what he's done is, he, what he and the people around him have done is to take what was a mainstream social democratic party, a mainstream centre-left party, uh, into a completely different direction. I think it's gone from being a broad church to a narrow sect. 
And I think it's I think there are people running the Labour Party who are completely outside its mainstream traditions. Why not stay and fight? That's what you know what people always say. You know, stay and fight. You know, the Labour Party went through this in the eighties and it swung to the left, and then gradually, you know, over over time, it was won back. What's different this time? Well, people say stay and fight, and that's fair enough. But where's the fight? I mean, <laughs> yeah. people need to start fighting. Yeah. I mean, I said this at the Labour Party conference last summer. People keep telling me, stay and fight. I say to them, start fighting. I've been fighting this. I mean, I was warning about the impact Jeremy Corbyn would have on the Labour Party before he was elected leader in 2015. The only extent to which I've been proved wrong is that I probably underestimated the scale of the, the catastrophe. What made you think that then? Because to a lot of people, Jeremy Corbyn came out of nowhere. He was sort of unknown, slightly quirky, cuddly granddad figure on the back benches. I think this is someone who's spent his entire time in politics, working with, defending, befriending all sorts of extremists and in some cases anti-Semites and terrorists. I mean, you look at the Stop the War Coalition, which he chaired. Um, it's not Stop the War, it's Stop the West. I mean, it's completely, it regards the West as a problem, America as the enemy, Israel as a source of all the difficulties in the Middle East. I think Jeremy and the people around him, they support totalitarian regimes abroad, like in Venezuela. They, when Putin sent Russian hitmen to murder people on the streets of Salisbury, he parroted the Kremlin line, ludicrously arguing that uh, the Britons should be sending examples of the poison to the Russians so they could tell us whether or not they were responsible. As if Putin was going to say, oh yes, we've checked it and we have in fact discovered it was ours all along. We just walked between the, the side of the Treasury and uh, the Foreign Office. Yeah. Now you used to work in the Treasury. I did. I went to it yeah, 20 years ago this year, 1999. I went to work for Gordon Brown as his sort of spokesman at the Treasury. You were one of his boot boys, weren't you? That's what David Cameron <laughs> called you. That's what a thing to say. I think that's... That's not a denial here. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, it's what David Cameron said, but I don't think it's true. No, I, look, I loved working there. And I, it was... Uh, what a privilege. What a great thing to be involved in, working for those fantastic Labour governments. Actually, Gordon rang me last, uh, last Thursday to try to persuade me not to leave the Labour Party. What was it that you thought might persuade you to stay? Well, I told him straight away at the beginning of the conversation that, that I'd, I'd made the decision. <laughs> You're not my boss anymore. And I've spoken to... No, I told him, I'd, look, you know, I've spoken to the local paper and, uh, and you know, there was no way that, uh, that this wasn't going to happen. And then we talked, you know, we talked about the work we'd done together and uh, the difference those Labour governments had made. And he told me how appalled he was about the position the Labour Party's got itself into with anti-Semitism. Talking about those Labour governments that you were you were part of, and then obviously you became an MP in 2005, yeah. and you mm-hmm. uh, sat behind Tony Blair and the Commons. The hallmark of those governments, to some extent, was the conflict, the battle between Gordon and Tony Blair. What you were fighting over then was pretty small beef, really, compared to the what you've ended up with. Do you, do you regret the sort of amount of energy that was expended on those, you know, actually quite small policy differences? Yeah, I, I do think. I mean, a huge amount of time and energy was was spent on that, was wasted on that really. I mean I think those governments achieved phenomenal things, but how much more could we have done if if that hadn't been going on? On the other hand though, I mean that's where the political debate was at the time. Yeah. It was within the Labour government. The Tories weren't on the pitch. And look, government is about big questions, big decisions, difficult judgments. The other thing I think about that is I mean compare those Labour governments, the gigantic figures, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Robin Cook, David Blunkett, John Reid, Donald Dewar. And look at where we are now. It is absolutely heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And the idea, if somebody had thought, even five years ago, that Jeremy Corbyn would be the leader of the Labour Party, the Labour Party would have been consumed with a huge problem of anti-Semitism that it refused to do anything about and was lurching off to the hard left. People would have thought you were mad. Do you think 
the way, particularly the way that Tony Blair was vilified. I mean, you know, Jeremy Corbyn basically ran on an anti-Tony Blair thing. You know, Blairite has just become... You're a Blairite in the eyes of some who don't totally understand the history of uh, Labour politics. The, that all sort of set the tone for the Corbyn in the end becoming leader. I think that's under Ed Miliband. Five years in which our record was trashed or not defended. And nobody in the Labour Party was asked to answer a single difficult question. Nobody was told, well, you know, you wouldn't be able to spend money on this or that, or we'd have to make some tough decisions. But look, it's difficult, isn't it? You lose an election. What's the extent to which you break with the past? What's the extent to which you defend your record? If you don't defend your record, who else will? And we lost the argument then about the extent to which the financial crisis had been our fault or had been an international issue. And, you know, you had a coalition that was formed with a central message of putting, which I don't agree with, but you know, putting right Labour's mistakes. So, and whilst that was going on, we were, you know, we spent three months in a leadership, in a, you know, in a sort of leadership contest. So I think we lost the argument really early on. Do you think that then Ed Miliband sort of then naturally led to Jeremy Corbyn because of, if you're not going to own your record, nobody else is going to? Yeah, but it's not just that, is it? It's changing the leadership rules. Yeah. And you know, what about... I mean, we went backwards. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it was a catastrophe. Period of leadership. Yeah. And what about his role now? I mean, he's been strangely... For somebody who is Jewish, of Jewish heritage, Look, it's been I'm not going to make strangely any, quiet. Well, I'm not going to make any... It's not for me to do that, but I do think everybody in the Labour Party should be outraged about what's happening on anti-Semitism. I mean, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable to me that a political party with a proud record of fighting racism, which so many of us joined to yeah. fight racism, has become embroiled in this. I just think it's, it's... I mean, it's a complete scandal. It's a complete scandal. The, I mean, how many people in the Labour Party, because they were desperate to get Britain into a sort of single market, Right, probably not that many. How many people join the Labour Party because they're desperate to fight racism? Yeah. Loads and loads. And so what happens now, do you think? Because it was sort of... Last week you didn't join TIG, the independent group, as it's known. Why was that? It's not really what the decision that I took last week was about. Yeah. I mean, I was... You know, I decided to leave the Labour Party because in the end I was ashamed to be a part of a political party led by people like Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, yeah. with people like Seamus Milne and Andrew Murray, lifelong communists. So that's, you know, I was very clear, that's why I was taking the decision that I did. And it wasn't about joining some other group, and I'd not talked to them about joining, join, you know, joining the group or anything like that. So what, what, what prompted it last week? Why, why last week and well, not? I could have, um, I've been pretty clear about what I think yeah, about yeah. things over a long period of time. I think there are lots of points at which I could have walked out. People kept saying, look, you've got to stay and fight. In the end, I just took the view that, you know, this fight is lost. You listen to what Luciana said. Yeah. And you, look, and you listen to what Joan Ryan said. And you just, you know, I just thought, look, Ian, you, you know, you've got to decide whose side you're on here. I think the way they've run the Labour Party is a complete disgrace. Look what happened to Margaret Hodge and look what happened to me. You complain about anti-Semitism. Well, I was subjected to fabricated... And, well, exaggerated and fabricated allegations. Um, against you? Yeah, against yeah. me, yeah, yeah. And they were quick enough to, to launch an investigation yeah. into me. I mean, they had the complaints. They sent me a letter of investigation the same day. The idea that wasn't cooked up in Jeremy Corbyn's office is just ludicrous. Of course it was. Given what you've said about how you don't think Jeremy Corbyn's fit to be Prime Minister, why did you still stand for Labour in 2017? Well, because, look, we all thought, didn't we? I mean, Theresa May thought... The Labour leadership thought, the public thought, the media thought, everybody thought Jeremy Corbyn... I mean, the reason she called the election was because everybody thought she would win by a landslide. And so I spent the whole of the election... I, I mean, I could not count 
the number of doors I knocked on where people have voted Labour all their lives said that uh, you know they were happy with what I was doing locally but there's no way they wanted to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. I'd spend the whole election saying don't worry about that there's no way he can win. The only question you've got to ask yourself is who's the best MP for Dudley? And every, look, the vast, vast, vast majority of Labour candidate, Labour MPs, were saying exactly the same thing. So the reason I was able to stand is because I thought there was no prospect of him winning. Yeah. How, how many Labour MPs do you think would be happy if Jeremy Corbyn was Prime Minister? Well, that's, uh, I mean, you know, 170, what, four of them voted against him in a motion of no confidence. Yeah. So I think they know that he's not capable of being Prime Minister, that he shouldn't be the Prime Minister, he's not fit to be Prime Minister. But some of them think, you know, any Labour government is better than any Tory government. What do you think about that now? A Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn be worse than a Tory government? Look, I took the decision I did, not on the basis of what the Tories are like, but on the basis of what Jeremy Corbyn's like. <laughs> and I took that decision because I think he's unfit to lead the Labour Party, I think he's certainly unfit to be Prime Minister. I think he would undermine our national security. He would undermine our democratic institutions as well. Look at the way that Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him talk about the free and independent media that we have in this country. He praises Russia Today. He criticises the BBC and praises Russia Today. He took money from Press TV, the official state broadcaster of the Iranian dictatorship. This is not someone who, who believes in or supports Britain's free press. I don't, as I said before, I don't think he's a patriot and I don't think he loves this country. So would you, in that situation, rather have Theresa May as Prime Minister? Look, who, you know, I'm sure that won't be the choice of the next election. <laughs> I don't want to avoid the question. I yeah. mean, it's, you know. If there was suddenly an election called this week, what would you do? Well, there is going to be an election called this week, is there? But I'm very clear that I don't think Jeremy Corbyn is fit to be Prime Minister. Yeah. Would you stand again in Dudley? You know, one step at a time. Yeah. One step at a time. You know, we were talking earlier about working the Treasury. I mean, what a privilege that was. Right at the centre of what was happening. It's the biggest privilege in the world to be the MP for the place you're from, the place you love. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Dudley. I live there. I love the place and I love the people who live there. And uh, is, is Jeremy Corbyn a drag in places like... Because actually, what happened when Luciana... I thought before Luciana quit, but she'd, she'd written a piece of Red Box and I tweeted and said, anyone who reads this should be ashamed of what's happening in the Labour Party. And I got all this abuse back from people saying, oh, yeah, but she's only got Jeremy Corbyn to thank about the fact her majority went up by loads. But that's, that's not what happened in your seat, is it? Look, I don't want to t speculate about what I'm going to do. I don't know. I mean, look, I yeah. took a massive decision last Friday. It wasn't, I wasn't calculating... I mean, look, if I was just worried about, you know, I'd have kept my head down. I yeah. wouldn't have criticised Jeremy Corbyn at any point. I'd have, you know, just gone along with it all. And I'm not prepared to do that. You know, it wasn't about my future and what I might do in the future. Yeah. It was about what I think of the Labour Party at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Is Jeremy Corbyn a drag on the... I mean, obviously, it's easier to win elections if you're a member of a political party. Yeah, yeah, in our course, system, yeah. of course it is. Right, but is Jeremy Corbyn a drag on the Labour Party? Without question, of course. I mean, he, his poll ratings are catastrophic. Yeah. I mean, they're disastrous. He is in, <laughs> in a two-horse race. When asked who'd make the best Prime Minister, it's a two-horse race. He comes third. He almost always comes third. <laughs> behind Dan, no. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We've got new YouGov polling which shows that he's down, now down to 19% best Prime Minister. the lowest he's been since the election. Yeah. It's been on a clear trajectory. Well, because, nobody, because ordinary, decent people in Britain cannot imagine him in number 10. Can't imagine him representing this country, standing up for it. Can't imagine him negotiating. I mean, can you imagine Jeremy Corbyn negotiating with Trump or with Putin? 
I mean, it's just laughable. It's utterly laughable. With a decent Labour leader, we'd be 20, the Labour Party would be 20 points ahead. 20 points ahead in the opinion polls, no question. I mean, you've got a government here which is in all sorts of difficulty on the biggest question facing the country. The Prime Minister's lost her key policy in Parliament by the biggest de- defeat in history, and she's faced a motion of confidence. Yeah. And, and look, what happened at the election? Of course... Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party did better than expected, that's true. And we did well in university towns uh, because of the tuition fee promise. And he did well with sort of public sector, middle class, sort of liberal minded voters in the inner cities and so on. But he did very, very badly in traditional industrial communities, like those in the black country or the potteries. In half the seats Labour was defending in the Midlands, the North, Yorkshire and Humberside, there were swings against the Labour Party in more than half the seats. The second biggest swing in the country was against Dennis Skinner. Now look, of course, you know, people say, oh, it's all, you know, it's all your fault for undermining Jeremy Corbyn. People say that to me. But they can't say that about Dennis Skinner. But they can't say that about Dennis Skinner. Right. So there's clearly... Uh, now, I'm, I'm prepared to concede that he did better than expected in some areas. Yeah. But he did very, very badly in others. He got, we didn't do very much better than we did in 2010 when we lost, and we lost the election. Is he a drag on Labour's chances? Unquestionably. So what happens now? Let's talk about Tom Watson, because Tom Watson's an old mate of yours. Yeah, he's a good guy, Tom. We were both working for the Labour Party in our 30s. Um, he's from Kidderminster, I'm from Dudley, you know, it's just down the road. So we go back a long way, and he's a good mate, and he's a good man. Did he try to talk you out of it last week? He knew what I was going to do. Yeah. I mean, I rang him to tell him. He said, I knew you would do this. I mean, he wished I hadn't done it. And he had tried to... He talked to me about this before last week when I'd said, look, you know, this is where I think it's going to get to. You know, he did try to persuade me and he wishes um, it hadn't come to this, but he understands why. Do you think he will stay in the party? Because he does... Everything he's... I mean, he's pretty... I mean, you know, we're used to extraordinary stuff, but everything coming from the deputy leader of the Labour Party the last week has been pretty extraordinary. Demanding a reshuffle, demanding a whole new policy platform. Now he wants all anti-Semitism complaints copied into him. He's, it looks like he's laying down a whole series of challenges. He knows that Jeremy won't. M- I think he's appalled. I, look, I think he, like lots of other people, he's appalled at the position the Labour Party's in. Yeah. It w- and it's quite right to demand that it's sorted out. Do you think it will be sorted out? Can be sorted out by this leadership? I think Jeremy Corbyn is incapable of dealing with the anti-Semitism issue. I think he doesn't want to. I think he doesn't really accept that there's a problem. I think he thinks he's the victim in all this. His view of himself is, you know, he's fought racism all his life. He's a really good and virtuous person. And anyway, racism, you know, that's something only those terrible right-wing bad people do. It's not something that good, virtuous left-wingers like Jeremy Corbyn do. So therefore, it must be a plot and a smear and a conspiracy. That's what he thinks. Cast your mind back to the summer. We had story after story about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, Reeds in Tunisia, all these things. And that was purely because he'd refused to accept the standard internationally, international definition, the ARA definition of anti-Semitism. Even John McDonnell knew that you've, you, you know, you've got to accept this thing. But Jeremy still refused. Even on the day the NEC met, he proposed changes to it. And when he turned up at the first PLP meeting after the summer, he said that he'd been very hurt by some of the coverage. I mean, that's what he said. Been very hurt by some of the coverage. What do you think of the Jewish community? How hurt does he think they'd been? I think this is, in the end, Palestine-Israel conflict is a tragedy. I, 
I want to see a Palestinian state. I've fought for that all my life. But I think he, for him and for some of the people around him, it's an obsession. He thinks all the fault is on one side. Israel, you know, is to blame for it all. Um, and I think he's... I think that's led him to, you know, mixed with all sorts of people with unsavoury, in some cases, anti-Semitic views over the years. So if he can't solve it, but there's also no obvious way that he seems to be going, he seems to be staying as leader, does it end up destroying the Labour Party? Well, as I said last week, I think the Labour Party's broken, yeah. and this is why I left. Yeah. Because it's very difficult for me to see how it can be put back together again. And you think, do you think others will follow you? putting the TIG thing to one side? I don't know. I think there are... I mean, look, there are definitely Labour MPs grappling with this and thinking about it all the time, of course. Did you tell Tom to quit? No, look, it's not for me to tell anybody what to do. I mean, I've... You know, if I've put up with this for this long, I can't tell anybody else not to, can I? (laughs) I just thought to myself, look, Ian, you know, you only get one shot at this. You only come this way once. You've got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror. And at the end of it all, whenever that is, you've got to know that you did what, what you thought was right. Other people will take a different view, and it's perfectly reasonable, and I'm not criticising them at all. But that's just the view that, I, you know, that's, in the end, that's a conclusion I arrived at. You also talked about not being able to look your dad yeah. in his eye. What, just to explain for listeners who didn't hear your interviews over the weekend, your dad's background and Well, my how dad was... So my dad was bo- uh, born in a place called Ostrava, which was then in the eastern part of Czechoslovakia. It's now in the Czech Republic. And he's Jewish. And uh, his dad died when he was a baby. He lived with his mum and his two teenage sisters. Oh, I, a few years ago, actually, I took him back to Ostrava. And we found the place they lived, the flat they lived in. He pointed up at the first floor window. And he said, that's the room I used to sleep in. It was the living room. That's where I used to sleep. And he said, on the, I think it's March the 15th, 1939. It might have been March the 16th. But anyway, he said he was awoken by a noise in the street in the middle of the night. And he got up, looked out the window. And he said he, he, he can remember seeing the German soldiers marching into the town square and then a few a few days later he was put on a train by his mum and his two teenage sisters and he came to England um, where he arrived <laughs> only able to speak only three words which were hot cross and bun but he grew up amazingly <laughs> that's all you need you can get yeah. a long way on that but he grew up to become the youngest grammar school headmaster in the country and was eventually awarded um, I think it was an MBA by the Queen for charity work. So, you know, which is a great thing about our country, really, uh, that someone who arrived with nothing could do that. I think it's fantastic. But his mum and sisters were murdered in Treblinka in October 1942. So it was the last time he saw them. Go and talk to Jewish people in general. They're appalled at the position the Labour Party's in. There was an opinion poll, I think a couple of years ago, that showed that (laughs) the Labour Party has been the traditional party for the Jewish community in Britain. It's also Louise Elman. She says when she was growing up, there were Jewish communists and there were Jewish socialists and there were a few Jewish liberals, but not many. But she said there was no such thing as a Jewish Tory when she was growing up in Manchester. So a party that has had such a lot, strong and long affinity with the relationship with the Jewish community. And there was, anyway, this opinion poll, it showed that only 8% of Jewish people would consider voting Labour. Now, I think probably 8% is now wildly ambitious hugely overstating you know, the, the potential support. If a political party has lost the trust of one of Britain's communities to that extent, but you can't really say it deserves the support of anybody else. Yeah. I mean, it must admit, and I have had this thing for well, it was about 12 months of saying this is not normal, and all that started around when there were those protests outside Parliament. 
Well, John McDonnell, John McDonnell last, said, last week said, we've got to have a big listening exercise. Could they not hear 2,000 Jewish people in yeah. Parliament? I'll tell you something about that protest that I will never forget. A woman called Susan Pollock, born in 1930 in Hungary, as a teenager imprisoned in Auschwitz. She now spends her time working with the Holocaust Educational Trust, travelling the country, telling schools and colleges about the evils of racism and prejudice. What a woman she is. Now, I first met her when she came to Dudley to talk at the annual Holocaust commemoration that I organised. And the second time I met her was in that protest. And this is someone who'd been in Auschwitz. And it was the first ever political protest she'd been on in her life. How could the leadership of the Labour Party not be so ashamed about that? Last year, last Easter, I spent five days in Poland on a thing called March of the Living, where you start in Warsaw, you visit the Warsaw Ghetto, the various museums and so on. Then you spend four or five days travelling around Poland, visiting different concentration camps, sites where, you know, clearings in forests where tens of thousands of people were shot, um, small villages where you hear individual family stories about how people were dragged out and killed. A re- I mean, it's a really moving thing. But it finishes up in Auschwitz, where you march, where thousands of people from all over the world march from Auschwitz to Birkenau. Um, and that's a really quite uplifting thing to be part of. But the thing that I'll never forget is being introduced to a guy who'd been in Auschwitz at the hotel in Krakow before we set off for, uh, for Auschwitz. And I was introduced to this guy and they said, oh, you know, this is Ian Austin, he's a member of parliament. Before he said anything else, he looked up at me in his, from his wheelchair and he said, uh, which party are you in? And I said, the Labour Party. His first words were, are you not ashamed to be in the Labour Party with all the anti-Semitism? And the truth is, I was ashamed. You know, and I could have left then. It's deeply shocking. Deeply shocking. So that's why I say, you know, I don't think I could look Jewish people and yeah. friends of mine in the eye if I carried on with it, really. It is hard for anyone, I think, outside the current Labour Party to look at it and wonder why you would stay, given everything that's happened. Well, people stay because they've devoted their lives to it. And it's, you know, it's their... It, it is, it's their life, it's their family. It, you know, the, the Labour Party has been... Apart from my relationship with my parents and my brother and sisters, it's been the sort of longest thing in my life. You know, yeah. I joined at the, age of, at the age of 18, 35 years ago. So you can understand why people are not willing to, you know, to leave. You've been asked this question a lot. Is Jeremy Corbyn anti-Semitic? Either he is or he's really stupid. That's the only two possible explanations. Look, I can't look into his heart and see what, you know see what's in there but I know that he's definitely said and done things that are anti-semitic grotesque racist mural in East London what would he say if that had been a Tory MP defending a grotesque racist caricature about any other group in Britain what would he what would he say what right does he think he or the Labour Party have to criticize anybody else's racism Trump or anybody else if we've got a leader who's capable of doing things like that or talking about Jewish people, or, I mean, his get-out is, he used the word Zionist, as if they somehow different from the rest of us because they don't understand English irony. And what do we normally call people who say or do things which are racist? <laughs> yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Have you had any contact with him? When was the last time you spoke to Jeremy Corbyn? I tried to speak to him about a briefing they'd circulated on the Middle East. I mean, he wasn't interested at all in talking about it. And... Look, he's not interested in talking to people who disagree with him or who are unhappy. He hasn't spoken to Luciana for 14 months. I mean, here's a, here's a young Jewish woman, victim of racism, being bullied out of the Labour Party, and he's not, um, you know, he's just not interested at all. Lucy, uh, Louise Elman talks about how she and other women Jewish MPs have told they don't, that they don't have human blood. And no action at all has been taken against people responsible for saying things like that. I mean, I'm constantly being told, you know, I'm being paid by Mossad or, you know, I'm working for the Israelis or whatever it is. And I just, if you complained about this stuff, you'd spend your heart, you know, you'd have no time to do anything else. I mean, I complained about one person in Dudley because, although not in my constituency, but nearby, claimed that six million people hadn't been killed in the Holocaust. He'd also threatened violence at the office. I just thought, well, you know, you've got a responsibility to the people who work with you. You probably ought to do something about it. So I did complain about that guy. I complained about him, I think, last September. And I think he was finally suspended a fortnight ago. Not kicked out of the Labour Party, suspended. Wow. I find it baffling just from a, like a PR perspective. If you're a massive organisation, why would you want loads of headlines accusing you of being right? You know, if it was Morrison's or Sainsbury's that had a problem, they would move really quickly Jeremy, look Jeremy has a blind spot on this yeah. and this is it's, it's uh, you know the Middle East issue is absolutely central you know to him and his political activity over the last you know his entire time in politics yeah. and the really the thing I find really distressing about this is that as a result you've got lots of people in the Labour Party who I mean there are clearly people who've had extreme views and you know on the fringes like Ken Livingstone and his weird, crazed conspiracy theories about Adolf Hitler and Jewish people. And then there are people who've come into the Labour Party to support Jeremy. But the thing that I find really upsetting is that there are people who would never have thought about this stuff, could never have found Israel on a map, for whom it would never have been an issue. But because they think Jeremy is this wonderful, decent, fought racism all his life or whatever, they sort of... They can't believe it's true, and so they they end up defending the indefensible, um, and get sort of sucked. Some of them get sucked into this poison, 
out of a desire to defend him. And I think that's the thing I find really appalling is that... Uh, Especially with the, the, the young... Yes. The young people he brought into the party. Yeah, not, not all of them. Not but no, of course not, not all of them. But, I mean, that's why this is an issue for people, that it would never have been in the past. Do you think that, as a result, young people, some young people, not all of them, end up becoming or repeating anti-Semitic tropes and, and trying to defend the indefensible as a result of Corbyn being leader? You know, it's a good thing that young people are interested in politics and they're getting sort of enthusiastic and passionate about it. And if you look at Luciana's CLP, it's not young people who've been bullying her, is it? But look, people would not be spewing out this stuff on social media if it wasn't because they thought they were defending Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. If anti-Semitism was a thing which stemmed from the Second World War and before that, you know, it should be dying out now, not being given new... This new, is 2019. Yeah. People in Dudley, a community with no Jewish people at all, are appalled yeah. by what's happening. They know there's something wrong here. I'm not talking about last week. Long before last week, when I was being disciplined, back in the summer, I had people stopping me in the streets to say, you know, you stand up for, for us, you stand up for yourself. You know, this is completely wrong. Ian, what's going on? It's 2018. How can this stuff still be happening? You know, I walked into a cafe, a woman I'd never met before, Knew, had seen what was happening, thought it was appalling. I'm a member of a cycling club, I'm a bike ride, people talk to me about it. <laughs> you must be sick of talking about it. No, but I think it is... I mean, I say to Jewish friends of mine, don't underestimate how appalled ordinary decent people are. I mean, they know there's something wrong here. They think it's, they think it's wrong, they think it's un-British, yeah. is what they think. I've come from Somerset, was, you know, there's no... I didn't meet a Jew the whole time I lived... So as a result, I just find the whole thing sort of baffling. I don't understand. This is something you read about in history books at school, not something that you had to... affect a mainstream political party in the 21st century. Yeah. What happens now? Is the Labour Party over? Does something else emerge from it? Let's look at politics more broadly. I mean, neither of the main parties seem particularly uh, in particularly good shape. You've been around politics a long time. Look, it's got a huge problem. I think it's broken under this leadership. I think it's going to take something extraordinary to put it right. I think that clearly the, you know, the Tory party's got massive challenges as well. I think what's happening though in politics is that the challenges are huge. The solutions are really difficult and complicated, even if there are any. It's much easier if, you know, you can have someone like me who comes along and says, you know, it's all very difficult. We've got to have, you know, how are we going to sort of master this new industrial revolution? We've got to have better skills, higher productivity invest more in technology, um, higher standards in schools, colleges, all of that. Or you can have someone who comes along and says, don't worry about all that, you know. Um, in the States, Trump built uh, build a wall, yeah. Farage, pull out of Europe, stop the immigrants, Jeremy Corbyn, tax the rich, end to austerity. I mean, these aren't answers, they're slogans. But you can understand why people, why a sort of, I mean, why a populist slogan uh, and a simple answer is more attractive to people than, uh, than the truth. But that's, the, see, I think that's the challenge for mainstream politicians. Um, it'd be easy, you know, if politics, if all you had to do was go around and say, oh, the Tories terrible, look at the NHS. I mean, it'd be simple, wouldn't it? But in the end, the questions are complicated. Mainstream politicians have got to come up with compelling policies, you know, proper policy answers, and compelling ways of communicating them. And I think the, the reason Jeremy Corbyn's the leader of the Labour Party is because the mainstream in the Labour Party failed to do that. Yeah. We didn't have people who were capable of putting forward solutions to these big questions in, in a compelling and persuasive way. 
And Jeremy came along with his sort of simple and easy answer, and people voted for it. So now we've now we've walked right round Green Park. It's been lovely. That's all the ducks and stuff in the background. But now round the back of number ten. Yeah. So just over that wall is Theresa May, yeah, yeah. literally Theresa May's backyard. Yeah. Who is there in politics you'd be pleased to see in number ten? Because across the board, there's a sort of dearth of. I mean, apart from apart from yourself, obviously. <laughs> I think we'd have a real problem. <laughs> I think the uh, although to be fair, I did work in there, and uh, but I think it'd be a long time before you know there'd be uh, Labour people working in there again. I think the look. I think there are, look there are, there are good people in the Labour Party. People who are certainly capable of doing you know doing the job. I think you know we talked about Tom before. Or Yvette or Hilary Benn. You know, of course there are some, you know, big and capable figures in the Labour Party. Um, and I think there are some... And you look at the Tory party as well. I mean, people like Tom Tugendhat. Yeah. You know, Chucker. I mean, I think there, is, there are clearly talented people around. But I think mainstream politicians have got to, you know, have got to start making, this, making the case for mainstream, practical, reasonable, yeah. reasonable politics in a way that we've failed to do. We've managed to go so far without getting one over, so let's not let's not do it now. What does life hold for you now as a as an independent MP? Do you lose your office? If you got if you got such a plum office that the whips are going to try and have it back off you? Well, my office is on. I'm on the same corridor I've been on since I since I first got first got elected. Although I've, I've moved offices along it, but um, it's on a main thoroughfare from one building to another. So MPs from all parties walk past all the time. So. I, I don't, think, you know, I don't think anybody could say, you know, I need to be moved for sort of reasons of confidentiality. <laughs> Amongst I'm, Labour MPs. I'm sure there's a, there's a special place in the basement that Jeremy's got spotted out for you already. A gulag somewhere. <laughs> you know, the people in the Whip's office are, um, you know, they're good people. <laughs> he says hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you are listening. In fact, I know of a couple that do listen, so if you are listening for the Labour Whip's office, leave, leave Ian's uh, office alone. Ian, it's been great to speak to you. No, it's been good to Thank talk you very much. Thank you. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.